every single time I went to a supermarket, there would always be like a little kid who'd be like, Mummy, why is she black? (laughs) If I see like a child who's of speaking age who is not black, I'm like, oh, here we go. It felt like too much of an ask. It's like, you know what? Today, I would rather not go outside with a sign on my forehead that says, say something to me. Not every day do I want that. You're hearing from artist Atong Atem. I remember as a kid being very aware of my skin and thinking it was beautiful because I looked like my mum and my mum was the most beautiful person to me. But then in school and in church as well, interestingly enough, there'd just be so many, like, metaphors that kind of use darkness as a negative. And as a kid, that really affected me. It was like, okay, so if day is good and night is bad, if white is good and black is bad, then that must also apply to skin because how could it not? I'm Yumi Steins and this is Seen, a podcast about trailblazers who, ignored by the mainstream, rise to excellence anyway. We start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record, whose culture includes a rich tradition of storytelling, art making and blackness, the Camaraygal and Gadigal people and their elders past and present. This episode features some explicit language. Please listen with discretion. It's not always the overt violence that fucks us up the most. It's usually the daily toll of existing in a world that doesn't recognise us as normal. Atonga Tem is a creator whose work is shown from here to Paris, London and New York. Her work is multidisciplinary, from film to textile to photography, and it manifestly embodies what it means to be black from the artist's perspective. Atong migrated to Australia as a young girl with her South Sudanese family after spending time in a Kenyan refugee camp. Their arrival was, shall we say, quite unceremonious. In my family and my culture, I suppose, a lot of South Sudanese people, when we travel and migrate especially, it's quite an occasion. So we get dressed up and I was wearing this fluffy silk cupcake style dress and my brothers were all dressed up in matching outfits and stuff. So it felt like this huge occasion. And then it's just sort of like, okay, good luck. Here you are. <laughs> wow. Sort of dropped off at the side of the road kind of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's what I imagine like dogs that get abandoned experience. Like they get to have a treat. They go on this beautiful car ride and then, all right, see ya. <laughs> Atong's family escaped Sudan during the civil war and fled to Ethiopia. From there, they went to Kenya eventually arriving in Sydney in 1997, where the migration of South Sudanese people in Australia hadn't really started yet. They were one of probably three other South Sudanese families my family knew of in the entirety of the country. The majority of South Sudanese people who migrated to Australia came here from about 2005 onwards. You know, we came here as refugees. None of us spoke English. And then they put us into a caravan at the caravan park in Gosford until they could find appropriate housing for us. So it was just this sort of weird kind of constant momentum. And I don't know how I felt then, but in hindsight, it kind of feels as though we were so accustomed to constant movement and not being settled, like we were unsettled peoples. We were constantly fleeing. You kind of are somewhere for a short period of time until you can't be there anymore and you've got to kind of always be prepared to leave. But they did eventually settle down and stop moving, finding a home in New South Wales's central coast. And even though the idea of a dark-skinned, non-English-speaking African family on a beachy, Aussie, soapy seems incongruous, Atong actually did okay in this environment. 
I tried to be a surfer chick, but I'm not a very solid swimmer. I was like, yeah, I've got a Roxy backpack. You know, I've got Quicksilver swimmers. Like, you can't touch me. I'm at the beach. I look cute. I could be in home and away. And it wasn't until adults were like, no, (laughs) that I was like, no. Interestingly enough, because we were so young when my siblings and I migrated, we sort of grew up with our neighbouring kids and whatever together. So there wasn't a huge sense of ostracisation from our peers. Most of that came from the adults in our lives and the adults in our communities. So it was kind of easy to not think much about our differences for the most part. Like it wasn't great all the time, but for the most part, we were just all kind of kids and we grew up together. It wasn't until we got a bit older, like teenage years, post-puberty onwards, that our differences were sort of weaponised against us. Not just weaponised, but the nuance of her background was flattened out by those who could understand her as only black and African. It's really, really fascinating because there's so many hundreds of language groups and tribal groups and ethnic groups in South Sudan. We referred to ourselves as Dinka or Monjang, which is our word for like our people. Like we have words for ourselves. Growing into consciousness of her blackness was like a slow accumulation of cultural baggage. I remember as a kid being very aware of my skin and thinking it was beautiful because I looked like my mum and my mum was the most beautiful person to me. But then in school and in church as well, interestingly enough, there'd just be so many like uh, metaphors that kind of use darkness as a negative and as a kid that really affected me. Because it felt like, how are all these white people comfortably saying, oh, that's a dark joke, or like, don't be dark-sided, or like, you know, because we grew up going to church, there was a lot of the fight between dark and light and all of this, and all these things that were considered really terrible about darkness, like literal darkness and metaphorical darkness. It was like, okay, so if day is good and night is bad, if white is good and black is bad, then that must also apply to skin because how could it not? There was just a lot of cognitive dissonance when I tried to sort of bring that up and question why we were using these two extremes in such inflexible ways. If you take a look at a Tonga's art, you might notice that it takes inspiration from fantasy and science fiction. Worlds where anything is possible. Since she was a child... Alien superstars were her pinups. It was something that my family and like that was our bonding thing. So on like an evening, we would sit together. We watched um, Stargate consistently all the way through. My mum would record shows for us while we were at school. So we'd come home and she'd taped Power Rangers or Dragon Ball Z while we were at school. There was just something about television as this familial bonding thing, especially for that for for like our family who had to sort of learn English on our own and had to learn the culture in which we were now living on our own. So there was so much that television offered to us, like compared to, say, your home and aways and your neighbours, science fiction and the storylines and the way that it sort of speaks to the human experience was so fantasy-oriented that it allowed space for us to project our own experiences onto it versus, say, watching a storyline on Neighbours or Home and Away, which was about how difficult it is for this middle-class white family to deal with the fact that their daughter doesn't have a date to the school formal or whatever, which I'm sure that's really difficult. But there was just so little space for us to connect. 
Having worked in TV, I know that the exclusion of black and brown people from so much that goes to air is not an accident. It's a choice that's handled, checked, vetoed and approved by a chain of human decision makers who all through the process of creation, from concept to broadcast, consistently choose to exclude everything but whiteness. Over the years, I've spent a lot of nerdy hours overthinking science fiction and I do think that there's an element of that story of the other, the alien other and how most sci-fi seeks to, in some ways, humanise alien characters and to show the ways in which the immediate response to try to destroy these other creatures or whatever isn't necessarily positive and there's allusions to colonialism in a lot of science fiction narratives. So I think in some ways there was a sense of I get this and I understand this and it's one of very few spaces in which I suppose like Western media will actually offer empathy to those who've been colonised. And if the new creatures aren't destroyed, they have to do something we've talked about on this podcast before. They have to become the model minority. So there was a sense of an expectation from us as migrants to be constantly and extremely grateful and to prove ourselves to the general population because by virtue of them being born in Australia or whatever or having automatic citizenship, they were the ones that we had to appeal to in our quest to become part of the society that we were in. And that kind of manifested in lots of different ways. It was either having to be better than they expected to prove that we were capable in terms of academics or whatever, but also not too good because they didn't want us to be better than their children. We had to sort of fit a very specific but also kind of impossible standard at all times. And the cracks really began to show when my siblings and I started to form our own identities. I was a bit punk post all of the surfy stuff and my brothers were just like young boys wanting to do their own thing and they played soccer and wanted to be great at it. When we tried to be our own people outside of the expectations that society kind of placed on us as African migrants from South Sudan, that's when the trouble really started, I think. I remember having experiences in school with teachers who would tell me what I could and couldn't do. With it. Like, there wasn't a sense of being asked, you know, what I wanted. So, for example, I wanted to study interior design or architecture at uni. And I remember being told, like, it's so nice that you can dream so big. Not like, oh, here are the practical ways in which you can achieve this. Like, I just really distinctly remember people kind of treating me like a three-year-old that was like, I want to be an astronaut. And there was a lot of actually overt racism as well, which in a lot of ways was a little bit easier to cope because you can sort of villainise someone that yells at you and, you know, calls you a racial slur or whatever when you're just walking past the street. But it is so much harder to villainise or see negativity or whatever in your school teachers who are saying you should think about going to TAFE and doing cleaning jobs on the side or, you know, perhaps you can lower your standards or whatever and kind of forced me to prematurely give up on stuff but also do things with the expectation of no outcome which in its own kind of way worked out well for me (laughs) you know I was like look I might fail but I'll do it anyway a pivotal moment in the lives of many artists is when they finally find like-minded people for a Tong attempt, it was in those early years of playing The Sims, chatting on internet message boards and exploring those early prototypes of what would eventually become social media. 
They call it microblogging. And the whole thing was that you'd have your own little Tumblr blog and it was a cute little web page that people could go to. You could upload images, you could write poems or write anything, and people could repost but also comment in their repost. And the thing that made it really cool is that it, lots of very unique niche communities developed out of it. Whatever you were into, there would be a community of it on Tumblr. And the thing I was into was my culture, being South Sudanese, wanting to experience media in which I didn't feel excluded. Suddenly, Atong was plugged in to a whole world of artists, writers, thinkers who not only looked like her, but also shared her history. A history which here, in this Eurocentric mainstream culture, was completely ignored. As a kid, I think I subconsciously knew that there was a lot of other black people doing really cool things, and there had been for centuries and centuries from the beginning of time, and I just wanted access to it. So I found people on Tumblr who were making websites where they just shared black art, or they just shared black fashion, or they shared their thoughts on social issues from the perspective of a young queer black guy who lives in New York, or from the perspective of a young mother who lives in Barbados or something. It was just this avenue to learn and experience the wide world of people whose interests I'm interested in. So yeah, it kind of helped me feel not alone in the world. One of the first artists that I saw on Tumblr that really opened my eyes is a Kenyan-American artist named Wangechi Mutu. And she makes then, the works that I saw were these interesting collaged images of like fantastical women, black women, made from cutouts of magazines, like porn magazines, fashion magazines. Those early moments of exposure to leaders in art can really help a young artist connect with what's possible in her own creative output. Microblogging gave Atong an audience who appreciated her offerings and it felt like the stakes were low. In a safe environment like that, it can be life-changing to be seen. Oh, I was so unashamed. I was just like, it just allowed me to just share things that I was working on. And every single kind of success or whatever that I've gained has really come from initially sharing those things online, having responses or no responses and just sort of feeling like encouraged to be able to share without fear. This safe space exposed Atong to the language of critical race theory. What it gave me was kind of direct language for things that I had visceral knowledge of. So for experiences that I'd had but had not had names for. So, for example, misogynoir, which is the very specific kind of misogyny experienced by black women because of them being black and women. And it's like, oh, that's that. That's that thing that I've experienced. Or it's the first time I learned the word colorism. And I was like, ah, I I didn't have a word to describe how black people, African people, or just people in general would be treated differently based on how close to white they appeared, you know, regardless of their heritage. And things like featurism, which was beyond that, like about, you know, what kind of facial features do you have? You know, even things like ableism, I didn't have a language to to, um, discuss, having words to discuss my own personal experience, but having words to interpret and understand ways that I could fuck up and cause harm to other people as well. So it was like, it was illuminating in a way that made me feel really seen and really gave me language for my experiences. 
but it was also illuminating in a way that made me realise the ways in which I was also capable of causing harm to others and ways in which I was privileged as well because I think I spent my whole life thinking that my family and my, as a kid anyway, that we were as bad as it gets because we're refugees, we're dark-skinned, we're African, blah, 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 blah. And then coming onto Tumblr and finding other people who were similar age to me or had similar interests to me and it's like, oh, we got out of the refugee camp. This person's writing their Tumblr blog from the refugee camp. Just like lots of different experiences. I think it just normalised having inter and intra-community conversations that kind of helped me reposition myself in the world, just made me feel like I could really talk about myself with authority. Atong and I record this episode at a time when yet another racism scandal has erupted in Australia. Now, if you haven't seen these before, this is usually how it goes. Typically, a non-white person speaks out about racist injustice that they've experienced. And typically, their white workmates or sporting teammates deny the racism, never saw it happen. They rally around the alleged perpetrator and subtly or overtly ostracise the non-white person for being unsporting, for selling their teammate out, for being a whinger and, above all, for bullshitting about something that isn't even real. It's worth mentioning that this occurs as we record because this is the environment in which we live, where to speak about racism in this country, you have to have a certain amount of trust that A, you'll be believed, and B, you won't be punished for talking about it. Is being hyper-visible dangerous? Absolutely. (laughs) It is, yeah. But what do we mean by dangerous is maybe the thing, right? Depending on where in the world I am, it can be quite literally dangerous to my body or existence and I've experienced racial violence and I've like I've experienced the danger the physical violence and physical danger that comes with being hyper visible but another danger that is more prominent more every day that I've experienced and that has like really kind of messed with me in the past is just the constant need to be constantly aware of your surroundings, the awareness that you have of your hypervisibility, the way that you navigate the world never being invisible, the way that if I if I'm not wearing certain clothes like a hoodie or whatever, I will just be constantly stared at. Every single time I went to a supermarket, there would always be like a little kid who'd be like, Mummy, why is she black? (laughs) Wow. Every single time. And it's like the kid is just making an observation. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you experience that on every second aisle, when you're at the supermarket just trying to get groceries every time you go to the supermarket or like a department store or anything, like any time, I literally, if I see like a child who's of speaking age who is not black, I'm like, oh, here we go. Like it's just... You have to steal yourself. And it's okay, you know, maybe if you're match fit, but if you're already carrying vulnerability... I had a period of time where I was just dealing with way too much. I was really busy with work. And so all of that kind of racial trauma on top of it meant that I became like a little bit afraid of leaving the house. It was just an outright fear, but I just wanted to be safe and comfortable. And the only place in which I was safe and comfortable was my own home. Atong says the tension of potential violence would get worse at those particular moments when dog-whistling politicians villainised ethnic groups to attract racist votes. I basically stopped getting certain trains because they would like, certain people would be on those trains and they'd be the kind of people that would just be like, go back to where you came from, blah, 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 all that stuff. And it's like, first of all, do you have a ticket? Because I will take it. 
<laughs> like, I would like to visit my family, please. It was, yeah, it was real intense. And it's so fun to joke about and all of that. But it's violence, you know, it's absolute violence. And it's not safe. And people were attacked, people were injured, people were hurt. When somebody says something like that to you, go back to where you came from, on a train, do others come to your defence? Not often, but I don't blame people because there's often a fear of violent retaliation mm. because people like that will often fight back at whoever's trying to help you. But I also, look, she's a classy girl, but she did grow up on the Central Coast, so I can mouth off. <laughs> I can hold my <laughs> own. And I hate to admit that sometimes it's just the release that I need. I'm like, I dare you. Say it, say it. Is there a place in the world that you can just exist? It was really fascinating to me because I moved from the Central Coast where we were super isolated, we stood out like a sore thumb, to then moving to Newcastle for university where it was pretty much the same and then Sydney and it was like, oh my God, I'm one of a slightly bigger percentage and I felt like that was as good as it could be. And then years later I moved to Melbourne and there seems to be in the inner city way more racial diversity in Melbourne and a lot more people that look like me. So it was like, oh, wow, okay, shit, it got a little bit better. And then travelling really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that I've really accepted crumbs (laughs) in terms of my comfort and places in which I can feel comfortable. There's a cliché about the best artists failing art school. Well, Atonga Tem dropped out seven times. I dropped out a bunch, tried four different art schools, and I realised that for me I had my own things to deal with just in terms of my own emotional stuff, like dealing with clinical depression, but I also wasn't finding an avenue for me to ask the questions that I wanted to ask and have them answered. I didn't feel like the community or the kind of intellectual curiosity that I was supported with on Tumblr, (laughs) that didn't really exist in uni for me. I think a lot has changed since then, but it was just really disheartening to sort of time after time see examples of beautiful paintings and they depict things that have absolutely nothing to do with where I come from and knowing intrinsically and actually and factually that there is a history of painting from all kinds of places around the world. Art being taught through a white lens with not even crumbs of comfort, safety or ancestral recognition did not work for a tongue. I really, really struggled to be engaged in the art history that I was being taught because it felt so foreign. (laughs) One of the first times that that changed for me was when I went to the MCA and they were having an exhibition of works by an artist named Yinka Shonabare, who is a Nigerian-British artist who makes these incredible kind of sculptures of people wearing 18th century Victorian style dresses but made with African wax print materials. Like that's sort of his thing. He uses these materials to recreate colonial imagery to talk about colonialism from the perspective of an African person who lives in Britain and blah blah blah. And I was like, why is no one telling me about this in uni? I felt vindicated in a way because I was like, I know there's more, I'm just not being shown it. And that tipped me into the idea of like, Perhaps I don't have to do the readings that I'm given. Perhaps I can seek out my own information, my own history that I actually find fascinating. And that just opened the floodgates and I learnt so much. And it wasn't even necessarily that I needed to see African art by African artists, although that's really profound. I just needed to see a history that acknowledged the existence of art practices from people outside of the European canon. 
And then that made me feel like, okay, yep, I can make art about myself. So yeah, I went back to the internet after my university failures. It sounds to me like Atong Atem graduated from the University of Internet with high-class honours. If you look at her art now, particularly her photography, you might be faintly reminded of old-fashioned pictures that we'd once have found in a natural history museum. Ethnography is like the study of cultures and the study of people. And ethnographic photography, when I talk about it, I'm talking about that very specific colonial ethnographic photography, which was photographs taken by British or European colonisers who would go to these places that they had colonised and take photographs of the people from those places in the same way that you might photograph plants. It was about presenting cultures that had been conquered in a way that justified the fact that they'd been conquered. So it didn't seek to humanise people. It didn't seek to celebrate or acknowledge their identities as individuals. It sought to sort of present these cultures as fascinations and as things to be studied. Part of why ethnographic photographs were so dangerous and are still so dangerous is because they function to justify the mistreatment of the people that are photographed and they function to justify the dehumanisation of those people. So it's very, very rare to see ethnographic photographs in which people look like individuals and are being celebrated for being actual humans. Also, on another end, like they are often the only kind of documented evidence of people's clothing, people's homes, people's customs. So there's a double-edged sword for me because as a South Sudanese person, ethnographic photography is most often the only way that I can see cultural practices from South Sudan. If I want to see cultural artefacts from South Sudan, I don't go to South Sudan, I go to the British Museum. So there's like a huge hurt in that. And I think that's why I'm so focused on it, because the colonial project worked so well that I need to rely on the tools of colonialism in order to learn about myself. So is Atong's art about revising history? or rewiring one's connection to it. Initially, the first series of paintings I did was repainting these colonial ethnographic photographs of kings and chiefs across different parts of Africa and repainting them and adding colour to them because they were these black and white images. It felt like a reclamation of this history. It felt like I was participating in it. I was adding colour to it. I was bringing it to life. And then slowly that evolved into taking photographs that were reminiscent of that post-ethnographic kind of post-colonial studio photography. So every art that I've made, every art piece, every art series, whatever, regardless of the medium, it's always been a self-portrait and it's always been about my relationship to history and it's always been about acknowledging that, you know, just by virtue of existing, my work is part of this canon of artists. Let's go back to in and out of art school dropout Atong, some of the time battling clinical depression. How did the leap occur from this passionate but inexperienced young woman to the world-renowned artist? It was late one night in a university studio. I'd hired a camera the day before and I was like, oh, I need a camera. And they were like, film, still digital. And I was like, yes. (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. But it was like... It was personal and it was intimate. I knew what I was trying to do. I didn't know how to do it, but I just figured it out with my friends who were also my community. It was a celebration of what I didn't realise at the time was a very pivotal moment. 
One of the people that I will shout out who got me my first major exhibition here in Melbourne was Layuli Ashragi, who's a curator. And they were curating a group show at Gertrude Contemporary. And they asked me to show these images that I had literally only shown on Tumblr and Instagram, these photographs. And I was like, oh, that's not like art, art. It's just photos. It's just, oh, I'm just playing around. And they were just like, no, no, this is like, I think it's really special. And they were curating a show that was about global art practices and it fit right in. And everything literally just exploded from there. The studio series is now a part of the permanent collection at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, and a tong is revered as a national treasure. The portraits definitely retain atoms of ethnographic styling with the deadpan stillness of the models and the studio-bound setups. But the inherent self-acceptance of the subjects and the blackness of their skin with the eruptions of colour and pattern this is the art of a fresh young voice and it's loud. Look, I'll never not talk about blackness in the same way that I'll never not talk about myself. It's part of my experience and beyond it being part of my experience, it's part of what has led to me having self-love. I just think black people are fucking cool. I love us. I love what we do. I love what we're capable of. I love our cultures. And that goes specifically for South Sudanese people. So there's like a love there. There's a huge love and celebration. Was there a point where you kind of went, listen, I'm, I'm fucking doing this, you guys. I'm actually doing it. It's working. It's like I'm one of those very, very few people that gets to do this for real. Yeah, I remember the point quite specifically. It wasn't that long ago. It was when I first had to start like, actually paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> What's the but threshold was, here in Australia? It's uh, it's, look, it's pretty low. It's like $18,000, but I literally was just not making any money. All of my 20s was working in cafes, cash in hand, all of that. Yeah. But I was still like living my best life because I was free. And then things sort of changed in the last probably three, four years is when it really became like, oh, no, like I need an accountant and I need all of this extra stuff. Like I need to spend money because I'm making money, which was such a foreign and annoying concept. And it's so, sorry, another tangent. (laughs) I'm like the person who's like, yeah, tax the rich, tax everyone. I was voting for all of the political parties that were like raising taxes. I'm like, yeah, the potholes need to be filled. The hospitals need to be better. Every single tax season, when I like feel a little teardrop rolling down my eye, I'm like, you voted for this a ton. (laughs) (laughs) There's your pothole filled, buddy. Exactly. With success has come visibility, which can be challenging for someone who just wants to make art. I had a bit of an anxiety at first when I'd first be asked to talk about my work because I felt this sort of pressure to speak about blackness in a way that would encompass the majority of the black people in Australia or in Melbourne or whatever, and that's just not right. I bought into the pressure because I bought into people reaching out to me and asking me to speak on behalf of my communities, and that's what I want to stop. What I will continue is like people asking me about me. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what do you think? How do you feel? Like, what brings you joy? What's your mum like? As opposed to how do South Sudanese people feel about blah, blah, blah. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I have no idea about how my community feels about anything. I just know about how I feel and I know my experiences. Is there an importance for you personally in being seen, being seen by little kids, being seen by art practitioners, collectors, gallery owners, powerful people and and very powerless people? 
I think I get really wary of that because I get nervous about being the one. I'm not Neo. (laughs) This is not the Matrix. (laughs) It can be really easy to refer to the person that has the most attention as the person. So like, you know, I'm now the African female artist in Australia or whatever. If anything, I would like to be recognised or like looked at as a door that is ajar that leads to so many others because I'm not the first, I'm not the best, I'm not the only. For me, the future is one in which the conversations that I've had to have aren't necessary anymore and where the demands that I've had to make aren't necessary anymore. But I kind of, for me, think that what I want to do and what I'm, the future that I'm trying to work towards by being public is a future in which we're just more honest about the world in which we live. A world full of diversity, histories through multiple lenses and black surfer girls. And I think we're getting closer each day. This has been Seen, hosted by me, Yumi Steins. Created by Bernadette Fung Nam Wian with Audiocraft in collaboration with SBS. From Audiocraft, this show was produced by Bernadette Fung Nam Wian and Cassandra Steve. Our junior producer is Alison Zwang. Sound design and mix is done by Ravi Gupta, and the executive producer is Kate Montague. The SBS team are Caroline Gates, Joel Supple, and Max Gosford. Our podcast artwork is created by EBO Studios, and music is by Yo. If I'm in the mood to like just go there, then it can be like a really beautiful emotional release to yell back and, you know, try to be a bit creative with my insults and stuff. (laughs) But otherwise it's just like, you know what, mate, like I'm on my period. I have to go to work. It's really late. I'm hungry. Can we just like just pause? Can we do this tomorrow? Like seriously. (laughs) Come back tomorrow. Just not right now, please. And I have said stuff like that and it's just like, yeah, (laughs) like, what do you say to that? It's like, okay, this person's unhinged and might injure me more than I will injure them. So I'm just going to leave it be. Hold up. 